Hey, this is Israel. Here at the river, we're all about the message of the gospel of peace. That the Bible says, beautiful are the feet of those who bring the gospel or the good news of peace. So we have good news for you. The war is over. God is not angry at you. God is in love with you. And you can have peace and righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. So we hope this message is a blessing to you. You can visit us online at theriverdurant.com for more. God renamed him Israel, not one trying to become great, but Israel means prince with God. Israel, Israel, it's the prince, the principal. El, God, the prince of God. The same thing God called Jesus, prince of peace. You have to hear this. To get the idea in your mind that Jacob was some sort of villain, some sort of scoundrel, some sort of cheater, some sort of... You have to get, learn that from preachers telling you that because the Bible never once ever even hints at it. There is no indication in Scripture anywhere that Jacob ever did anything wrong except one moment. And his mother made him do it. His, it was all his mother's idea, and he was begging her not to make him do it. Grandpa Abraham, on the other hand, bald-faced lied about who his wife was before he was made righteous. Oh, I'm sorry. He did it once after he was made righteous, too. Why is he not a deceiver? Why is he not slandered like Jacob is? I'll tell you why. Because there's not a nation named after him. There's always been this evil underlying hatred for the nation of Israel. In my world, it's called anti-Semitism. So we want to be libelous and label their ancestor. The reason they're like they are money-grubbing Jews, the reason they're like they are is because that, that Israel, he was a, that, that, that Jacob, he was a money-grubber. He was a thief. He was a deceiver. He was, he was none of that. I don't know where the Bible ever says he was any of that. It just doesn't. I've inspected it. I've studied everything about it. All I find is this is one of the greatest men that ever lived. A marvelous hero of Scripture. A great man of faith. I've never seen faith operate in most people like it operated in Israel. Let me just take you back to that moment, though, where he gets this bad rap. Oh, he deceived his father. Let me just remind you. He wouldn't even try to change his name, try to change his voice to sound like his father. Or to sound like his brother, I should say. He wouldn't even change his voice to try to sound like his brother when he went in to his daddy. Mom, I don't want to do this. You just, pay, you just do what I tell you to do. In a land where there was no law, everybody hear me, there was no law in Israel. There was no commandment said, thou shalt not bear false witness. There was no commandment said, thou shalt not lie. There was no commandment. The only commandments you had back in those days were the commandments of your parents. You obeyed your parents or you got killed. Now I'm just going to put you in Jacob's shoes. You've got a parent. You've got two parents. And they got opposite opinions. They have opposite opinions. 
And one of them is always on your side, always protecting you, always trying to do the best for you. The other one's always on your brother's side, which was the case. Mom was always on Jacob's side because she had those words from God about him. And Isaac was always on Esau's side. Okay? So you got the parent who's always on your side telling you, I know best, and she's always done well for you, and she tells you to go deceive your father. Just play along. I'll take care of it, but I, I need you to go do this. You're probably going to do what mama tells you to do. Anybody in their right mind would. There's nothing deceptive on his part. He's just trying to get by in life. The major legal voice that speaks to him is his mother. And he has to go do it. Doesn't even try to change. I can sound like my brother if I want to. He could have too. He could have put some gravel in his voice. Yeah, I'm Esau. I've been out in the woods so long. Sorry about that, Daddy. Yeah, it's me. Got a little bit of scratchy throat. No, he didn't do any of that. He goes in there with his own voice. Kind of thinking, I, I think he's kind of hoping he'll get discovered. Are you really Esau? You can almost see him looking back in the kitchen. Mom's in there. Do what I tell you. Do what I tell you. Yeah, I'm Esau. Why does he get such a bad rap? Partly this, too. Not just anti-Semitism that's underlying in everything that you hear. But partly that the religious world doesn't know what faith is. I heard somebody call him a cattle thief one time. Because he took those rods and stripped them. Made them striped. They called him a cattle thief. You want, to hear, you want to hear how that story went? Here's how that story went. You ready for the story? Had nothing to do with him being a thief. He had worked for this lousy low-life Laban. This lousy low-life Laban, by the way, who was the brother of his mother. You wonder where she learned her, her, her ways of deception. He worked for Laban. They must have been a good-looking people, though, because every time one of them saw the girls in that family, they went, wow, wow, wow. They wanted them, you know. Must have been beautiful people. Except for that firstborn daughter. They couldn't get her married off. Had cow's eyes. I think cow's eyes are pretty. I don't know what that means. But the Bible says she had cow's eyes. I, she had big brown eyes, big eyelashes. You know, I don't know. Jacob worked seven years for this girl whom he loves. And they probably had a really big Jewish party with a little too much wine. Okay, way too much wine. There are no street lights anywhere. It's dark at night. 3,500 years ago, it was dark at night. Wouldn't that be great? There are places in Oklahoma where it's still dark at night. You get down these woods down here, whoo, mercy. Yeah. I can just see him waking up in the morning, and he's got the ugly girl in bed with him. How long you been here? All night long. I can't fathom what he does next because in the redneck world that I was raised in 
after you go beat her daddy senseless, sweep him up into a pile and beat him back down again, dig up a few of his dead relatives and kill them. You take the girl you wanted and leave it all and go. That's not what he did. He said, what have you done to me? Laban says, oh, it's just our tradition. We just thought you'd go for it. It's all right. You know, just go ahead and take her. I'll give you the other girl too, but you've got to work another seven years. Would you just hit him in the face with a shovel the moment he says that? Yeah. Just, wow, you're done, man. I know I sound violent. I'm not really that violent. But that's what you'd want to do. I mean, kind of, what kind of bozo are you? Jacob doesn't do that. Looks at Rachel. She's worth it. Okay, I'll do. I'll stay seven more years. Seven years he stayed. Not seven seasons, not seven months, seven years. He went from being maybe 24 to 38 years old with this guy. Spent his youth with him. And at the end of it all, he said, all right, now let me go. I'm ready to go. He said it seemed but, but, but a moment to him. Let me go with my wives and my children and my stuff and pay me my cattle, my share. He said, all right, all right. What do you want? Well, I don't want any of the white ones. I'll just take the spotted, the ring straight, and the brindled ones. I want the colored folk. I want the Americans, that mixed breed. That's what I want. I want the American cattle. So he says, all right, that's a good idea. You can have all that the cattle bear from here on that, uh, uh, that are, that are the, the colored variety. Okay, okay, great, great. We got a deal. He gets up the next morning, goes out there, and in the night, Laban had instructed his sons and his helpers to go remove all of the spotted animals that they presently had out of the herd and take them a long, long way away. <laughs> Jacob didn't do that. Laban did that. And left nothing but white animals for him to get his spotted animals from. Now, if you know anything about genetics, you know that's a little bit difficult. Now, they were a mixed herd, and we know that spotted animals could have been in there, you know, still, even though they were white. But it's going to be more difficult. So he gets all the female animals up to the trough, peels these rods so they look striped, and sets them in front of the cows as they are drinking water. And as the, the males come to service the, the females, they conceive looking at those striped rods. <laughs> I was raised on a farm. We raised cattle. That doesn't work. <laughs> that won't work. <laughs> Is that... Genetics has laws, and that has nothing to do with striped rods and them looking at them. Right. Nothing, 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 nothing. S something happened, though, because the Bible says when they did that, they conceived, they bore, they bore calves and, and, and babies that looked like that. Huh. I wonder what happened. What happened was Jacob just used his faith. He just put legs to his faith. He just put legs to his face. I know you don't have enough money for groceries. Go ahead and set the plate anyway. Amen. 
I, I know you want that baby. Go ahead and fix the nursery anyway. Amen. Even though it hadn't come, hadn't come. I, I, I know you're waiting on your healing. I know you're waiting on your check. I know you're waiting. Go ahead and start acting like you've got it in the name of Jesus. Just keep acting like, well, I've been doing that for a year. Just keep doing that. Well, I've been doing that for two years. Just keep doing that. Abraham waited 24 years. Who cares how long it takes as long as you get it? Praise God. Amen. Amen. They just, he, he, just, he just did something. He just did something to make it to activate the blessing of God for his life. That's called faith. That's how faith works. You just keep doing the things to make the good stuff come to you. He had had enough of what wasn't right. How many in here had enough of what ain't right? I'm, I've had enough of what ain't right. I know God is on my side, glory to God, so I'm going to stay with it until I get what is right for me. Amen. Enough of what ain't right. God's called us to get what's ours. And Jacob teaches us that lesson early on. This guy rips me off, goes against the deal, changes my wages ten times. But one thing he, I have that he doesn't have, I have a covenant with Almighty God. Amen. I have a covenant with Almighty God. And God backs up my word. God backs up my desires. Amen. 20, from chapter 25 of Genesis through chapter 50, 49 of Genesis, I should say, Jacob appears almost in every chapter. There's a few little chapters here and there, but it's about his sons, Judah and Jacob, or Judah and Joseph, if he's not in it. Listen, there are seven primary characters. You might want to write this down. Seven primary characters in the book of Genesis. The first one is Adam. The second one is Enoch. The third one is Noah. And the next three are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the last one is Joseph. These, are the, that, these guys are what the book of Genesis are about. Okay? Adam, Enoch, and Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. But from 25, chapter 25, where, where Jacob is introduced, listen, this is a big crowd. Are these big names? To, to even get named with these other six people is a pretty big thing. They're all in the same book. But it's like the Bible cannot get over Israel, cannot get over this one guy. All through the scriptures, he keeps coming up, and his name is everywhere in the Bible. His name is everywhere in the Bible, everywhere. It's all about his people. They're rarely called the children of Abraham. They're almost always called the children of Israel. Why is he so denigrated? I don't get it. I think it's the things I've told you. When you get an understanding of what faith really is, you understand faith actions are not fear actions. Faith actions are not arrogant actions. Faith actions are not... I had, I had somebody tell me one time, yeah, but he wrestled with that angel just to get a blessing. I said, so you don't want to be blessed? No, I love to be blessed. Okay, so tell me again why you don't like that. Tell me one more time. Well, I, 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 I just don't think you should wrestle with God to get bl blessings. I said, you don't have to anymore. Jesus wrestled with, a, with, a, with, a, with, with Calvary. You, you don't have to do that anymore. Oh, okay. Okay. It's amazing how, how the understanding most people have is so law-based and so Old Testament-based. It is kind of scary that the New Testament is not taught in most churches. The New, Test the New Covenant doesn't mean anything to most people. Oh, man. Oh, man. 
They, they want to preach like Peter preached to the Jews. Repent, all of you scummy sinners. <laughs> repent, repent, repent. Holler, don't preach repentance enough. I hardly preach it at all. What are you talking about? I'm not saying you shouldn't repent. If you need to repent, if you need to, go ahead and be my guest. If it makes you feel better, jump on it. I just learned that if I walk by faith, I don't ever need to repent. If I stay in faith, I don't really need it that much. Huh? When I'm walking by faith, I'm walking in righteousness. Glory to God. Because faith isn't something like righteousness. Faith is righteousness according to the scriptures. Amen. I don't want anybody to shout it out. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I embarrass my Wednesday night Bible study. Those are the grown-ups of the Word. Amen. They come in. I asked them to finish this lesson, this question. Faith without works is, they all said, dead. I said, why would you quote James? Why would you quote Paul? Paul said, faith without works is righteousness. Faith without works is righteousness. That's what Paul teaches. And not, not once, about ten times in the book of Romans. Faith without works is righteousness. Why, do you, why are you always quoting James? Well, it says it. I know it says it. Did you ever read who he was written to? He said he's writing to the 12 tribes. He's writing on the basis of law. The Jews still kept the law all through the New Covenant. Ah. Which brings me to my second, just for the record. The law was never intended for Gentiles. The law was never intended for Gentiles. Let's turn to Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. Romans 2, 14. The law was never intended for Gentiles. Unless you're a little girl that needs a spanking, then it's, then it's for you. No, you don't need no spanking, do you, baby? <laughs> Romans 2, 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law. He didn't say that who do not obey the law. Who said who do not have it? Why don't they have it? Because God never gave it to them. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things contained in the law are a law, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Meaning I don't have to have something out there telling me what to do. I got a voice on the inside telling me what to do. If you're born again, you can't get away with anything. Anybody here know what I'm talking about? I've tried it a couple of times today. <laughs> you can't get away with anything because the voice speaks to you from the inside. He'll talk to you even before you do it. Can I get a witness? I mean, he'll talk to you even before you do it. He's not a law saying, you lousy sinner, look what you did. He's a... He, he, He's a cop in the intersection yeah. saying, stop. Yeah. I put it like this. The difference between medical doctors and nutritionists is a nu the medical doctor wants to make sure you have the best ambulance available, possible, at the bottom of the cliff. A nutritionist wants to build a fence at the top of the cliff. <laughs> a 
But if you need if you need a doctor, you go see the doctor. I'm just saying that's kind of the. They're not designed to keep you from getting sick. They're just designed to help you if you do. <laughs> Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness between themselves, their thoughts excusing or else excusing, accusing or else excusing. It's amazing. Their thoughts are on inside. You are a law unto yourself. And the law was never given to Gentiles. Most of you have heard me do this, but I've got to walk you through this for the sake of the series, and we're recording all this. The law was not written to Gentiles. The law was written either to convert Gentiles to, to Judaism or to destroy Gentiles. For everyone who wouldn't convert and become circumcised and part of Israel, the law was meant to get rid of them. I, I've asked the question, and I'll ask you rhetorically. Thou shalt not kill. Did God really mean that when he said that to Israel? The answer is no, not the way you think. He could not have, he could not have meant thou shalt not kill. They say, well, it means thou shalt not murder. I say, what do, you what do you call killing a baby in its mother's arms and killing the mother too in a wartime? What do you call that? Is that an act of war? Is that an act of genocide? That's against the rules of war even for the communists. It's against the rules of war for everybody. Virtually for all time. And God told Israel, coming up, out of, coming up out of Egypt, go up into that Canaan's land and kill everything that breathes. Kill their pets. Did thou shalt not kill mean thou shalt not kill to a Jew? Sure didn't mean it to the Canaanites. I mean, the Durantians. Because we were them. Don't forget that. We were them. We were not Israel coming up. We were the Canaanites. See, this is what's wrong with, with thinking. We tend to put ourselves in Israel's place. When we're not in Israel's place, we're Gentiles. We're in the Canaanites' place. You follow this? And thou shalt not kill to the Jew just meant don't kill each other. Because we didn't have the law. They had the law. And Gentiles were their prey. Wow. Then he said, thou shalt not steal. That same God that told him thou shalt not steal told him to go borrow from the Egyptians the silver and gold. So now he's telling them, just say you're going to borrow it. So he told them to lie to them too. <laughs> that holy God told them, go lie to these guys and act like you're just going to borrow their silver and gold. Now he's said it like this. If your neighbor borrows your lawnmower and puts it on a moving truck, what are you going to tell people he did with your lawnmower? He stole it. That's what they did. The same night they were getting ready to leave, knowing they were leaving the country, they went and said, can we borrow your silver and gold? Wink, wink. <laughs> and they left the country. And God told them to go lie and steal from the Egyptians. Lie to and steal from the Egyptians. Did the Egyptians, did that law work for the Egyptians? Yeah, it worked to ruin them. Did that law work to help the Canaanites? No, it worked to destroy them. The law was never for the Gentiles. Never, ever, ever for the Gentiles. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's still not for the Gentiles. It never was, never will be. It was not designed for you. Now, 
countries and governments and fathers of nations have come together and read the Bible, and, and they have seen that the laws in the Old Testament really make for pretty good civilizations. But they apply them to all of the citizens. So the law, if it's used lawfully, as Paul says, can be a good thing, is a good thing. It's even holy in a certain sense in that it's good, a good thing that we have laws here in our nation. How many of you are thankful we have some laws? I'm not, I'm not crazy about all of them, but I'm thankful we have some laws. I'm thankful they have something called a stop sign. Not that my wife pays any attention to them, but I like the fact that we have them. She thinks it's a suggestion <laughs> instead of a law. Amen. <laughs> I love you, sweetheart. I love you so much. The third, thing, the third thing of these 32 is this. Joshua did not let the sun go down on his wrath. I said something to you all, you all about this recently. You heard me say things about some of these things. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27, let's read there, please. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27. The Apostle Paul, teaching the Ephesian church, he does not say, I'm going to allow you to be angry. Just get over it before sundown. That's the way we've always been taught. I'm going to allow you to be angry. Just get over it before sundown. Because you'll let the devil, you know. And the way we've always been taught is now, if you get mad, you kiss and make up before you go to bed. Come on, how many of you had it taught to you that way? Be honest. You got to kiss and make up. You know what I say? That's not a bad thing. Can we get Ephesians 4 up? Casey, go hand him that hammer again. <laughs> Amen. If you, if, you get, if, you get, if you get angry, you know, it's a good idea to kiss and make up before you go to bed. I, 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 I'm in on that, but that's not what that, that passage is saying. I found as a long-term pastoral counselor, one of the degrees I have is in pastoral counseling, I found, <laughs> I found that, uh, that most of the time when couples have disagreements, they start after dark. I therefore, uh, be angry and do not sin. Listen to me. If the do not sin is a command, then the be angry is a command too. If the do not sin is a command, the be angry is a, sin, is a command too. The first one's not a suggestion and the last one is a commandment. The whole thing is a commandment. Get angry and stay that way and don't sin. Now listen to me. He's not using anger as a sin. Be careful not to sin if you get angry. What it really says is be angry and that'll keep you from sinning. Right. I don't know what happened to America. This used to be an angry nation. 
a peace-loving but angry nation, angry at every injustice in the world, angry at those things that didn't look like God, angry at, at what goes wrong, angry at people being lazy, angry. At, you understand? It, 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 we, we had standards and we held them. And when we, when we started talking about how, well, so, you know, just don't be angry, don't be angry, don't be angry. Don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics. We just got to be the softest, mushiest people on earth. And sin runs rampant when there is no anger against it. That is good preaching. Be angry and sin not. And then he says the next thing, the next verse. Nor give place to the devil. Whoa. Being angry is not where you give place to the devil. Cooling off is where you give place to the devil. <laughs> Let not the sun go down. Is that verse 28? Let not the sun. No. 26. Did we skip 26? Let not the sun go down on your wrath, on your anger. That means don't ever let the day of your anger end. Well, who are we angry at? All the people? No. Later he says, don't, flee anger. Forsake, forsake anger. When you're talking about one another, don't lie to each other. Don't be angry with one another. We're not talking about being angry with people. We're talking about being angry at the spirit of Antichrist that's at work in the earth. Get angry about the spiritual things and stay hot stay hot have an opinion the people of God have to get an opinion again even if it comes out like volcanic lava it, you, you're supposed to have an opinion you're supposed to express indignation about things what happened why is it why is it always wrong to express yourself indignantly as, as long as you're right Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. I don't believe for a moment that anything other than this was taking place. I believe that Paul had in his mind the day Joshua was tearing up the Amorites. That's who he was fighting, the Amorites. He was tearing them up. And God liked the battle so much, it says that he began to rain hailstones down on them. As, as they're running from Joshua, God gets involved and starts raining hailstones down on them. You can almost see it. Joshua runs up there. He's about to get one guy, and a hailstone takes his head right off. I wanted that one, Lord. And it says, and God killed more of them than, than Joshua and his army did. When you're in a fight, you want God in there fighting with you. So you fight the right fights. Joshua turns around and looks, and the sun is going down in the west. And it says, sun, stand still. And it just stayed there for a whole day. 24 hours, the sun it just stayed in the same spot. I know what happened. You all know what happened, too. The earth stood still. The sun stood still from Joshua's perspective. Don't you know it got hot someplace in the world? And just stayed that way. 
just stayed that way. Stay that way. And they fought and fought and fought until they ran the place, they ran the enemy off their place, giving no place to the devil. So if you want to, if you want to get more of this stuff out of your life, you've got to get a little bit more indignant. If the and sin not was a commandment, the be angry is a commandment. Not with anybody, not with people, not with your husband. It's not his fault that he's a dumbo. <laughs> he was born with that. James Dobson said men have, are born with brain damage. <laughs> All the women said amen. He said somewhere in the development, I, I forget where it seemed like in the second trimester, third trimester, he said a, a testosterone wash goes across the baby's brain. He studied all this stuff. He said a testosterone wash goes across the baby's brain and causes brain damage. That's why boys are really about, always about two or three years younger than girls. Girls walk at eight and nine months. Boys walk at 14 months if they get around to it, you know. They're, and, they're, and, there are, and there are exceptions, of course, but, you know. <laughs> he says they're born with brain damage. Oh, he can't help it, ladies. Why you get mad at him? And by the way, she can't help being the way she is, fella. You stay mad at her. You can, you can get mad at her and stay mad at her all you want to. She's not going to change. And if she does change, she becomes a man. Is that really what you want? <laughs> or do, do you not want this unpredictable, wonderful, strange creature in your life? Huh? She keeps life interesting. But I thought you liked red. Well, I did last week. <laughs> oh. Okay. <laughs> that is out of style oh okay yay and you fellas I would never feel sorry for you ever I'm married to an interior decorator brother you talk about somebody that changes every holiday every season every sneeze we change the way our house looks because she likes things different and I just try to keep up with it I used to get angry I used to just get angry. What good does that do? Come on, I, you were shouting just a little bit ago. Y'all were having such a good time. I went to meddling. Be angry and don't sin. I think those things go together. I'm going to stir up some righteous indignation. At least you can go register and vote. You've got to be angry enough to go vote. Get registered and go vote. Praise God. Unless you're like the guy that went forward for prayer. Did I tell you this? I probably did. He went forward for prayer and said, Pastor, pray for my hearing. Pastor stuck a finger in each ear and prayed, prayed to high heaven, prayed up one side and down the other, popped his fingers out of his ears. He said, how's your hearing now? He said, well, I don't know. I don't see the judge until Tuesday. So, <laughs> so, uh, if you've had to see the judge or something like that, you might not need to vote. But <laughs> Number four. <laughs> Number four. Jesus never prayed to escape the cross. 
Jesus never prayed to escape the cross. Even some of my heroes preach that he, in this moment of humanity, prayed in the garden, let this cup pass from me. Father, if you will, let this cup pass from me. Thinking we just found, a, we finally found a moment of weakness in Jesus. Where it was just too much for him to bear. The thought of dying that way. I just don't believe it. I just don't believe it. I never can square this with all that Jesus is. And then I studied it. And I found that I was right. Jesus was not praying to escape the garden. Jesus was praying for strength to get through that night. Because what you may or may not know about that night is that Jesus was dying and he said so. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26 and 38. Matthew 26, 38. Miss Ann, do you have it there? I'm going to let you read it. Matthew 26, 38. It'll come up on the screen in a minute. Then he said to them, read, Miss Ann. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stop right there. How many of you know Jesus was not one to go around saying, Oh, that just tickled me to death. I thought I was going to die. You know, he never once ever talked like that. He never once ever talked like that. He, was, he did not use slang. He did not, I don't even know if we could have understood him in Texas and Oklahoma. He, he, he wasn't like that. He just didn't talk like that. Every word that came out of his mouth, he said, I don't say or do anything that I don't see the Father do. Everything that came out of his mouth was orchestrated and ordered by God. Yes. This too. When he says he's exceeding sorrowful even to, he said he was dying. He knew he was dying. What's causing this? He's not at Calvary yet. What's causing this? What's causing this? From a theological standpoint, you have to see that before he can become the sacrifice for sin, sin must be reckoned, reckoned over onto him. The lamb was not guilty of sin. The goat was not guilty of sin. But when, they, when the sinner brought those sacrifices in, the high priest as God's emissary, as God's voice, as God's hands in the earth, would reckon the sinner's sin over onto the sacrifice, transfer it by laying the, the hands on them, and deeming that animal guilty of that sinner's sin. That's how it worked. Not one time did the high priest ever inspect the sinner to see if he qualified. Not one time did the high priest ever inspect the sinner to see if he qualified. All he ever inspected was the sacrifice to make sure it qualified. So here's the night, Jesus in the garden, and I am convinced that God, acting as his own high priest, confers and transfers the sins of all humanity from Adam to the last Adam. All mankind have their sins in the hands of God, as it were, and he transfers them over onto Jesus in that garden. It had to happen before the sacrifice was killed. And I believe at this moment it's crushing him, and his soul is becoming exceeding sorrowful even to the point of death. Come on, let me see the hands of everybody here who's ever done anything wrong and felt bad about it. Let me see your hand. That's this room full. If this room full of grief, that feeling bad about what you did wrong, 
if all of that was on one person in this room right now, just that load would nearly break their hearts and kill them. Just that load would nearly destroy them. God put all of that plus billions more over onto Jesus that day. All the grief, all the sorrow, all the punishment, all the anxiety, all that was due, every human being was laid on him in that garden. It's amazing that he made it through the night. What kind of man was he? It might be the greatest miracle of his time on earth that he could endure that kind of horrific pain. It was crushing him. Now, let's talk about Jesus for a minute. He had never once ever known separation from the Father. He had never known anything about sin. There's no way to have a practice run at that. There's no way to have a dress rehearsal. All he had ever known was close, personal, one-on-one communion with the Father. Even when he was being carried in his mother's womb, he had never known one moment separation from his Father. Until now. Now. He's dying. And it says in Luke chapter 22, let's turn to Luke 22 and verse 44. Luke 22, 44. We're still in the Garden of Gethsemane, but it just says this. Striking thing. Miss Ann, do you have it there? I want it up on the board as soon as possible. Luke 22, 44. His sweat became like great drops of blood. Why would they say that? Because it had blood in it. I talked to a medical doctor in my family. He said it's called hemotidrosis. Or it has another, they said another way, but hemotidrosis. Hematidrosis, I think. Is that right? Hema? Hematidrosis. Meaning, sweating blood. And it can be deadly. If something doesn't change, that can be deadly. You can see how quickly you can sweat out your blood. And it comes from extreme pressure, stress. He began to bleed through his pores. And I believe that's why he was dying in that garden. Knew he was dying. Now take that in its context when he takes Peter, James, and John a little further away from the others and say, you wait here, I'm going to go on over here. And he goes a distance by himself to pray. And he's praying, the Bible says, in agony. And he's praying now, Father, let this cup pass from me. He knows he's out there with no dress rehearsal. He, know, he has no idea what's going on. He doesn't know. There's no way for him to know. He's dying, and he knows he's dying. He knows that since the separation from his father coming. And then he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. He is not begging to escape Calvary. Two reasons why I know. One 
in Matthew chapter 16, I think it is. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And he blesses Peter with this word. They say, they say, some say this, some say that, but Jesus said, well, who do you say? He said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. He wasn't talking about the rock, Peter. He was talking about the rock of confession. Upon this rock, I'll build my church. Not a stone, but a rock. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Praise God. This rock of confession. Then in John chapter 12, well, just, just after that, Jesus starts talking to them about his crucifixion. You remember what happened then in that same chapter? He starts talking to them about his crucifixion. And Peter took him and rebuked him. And when Peter rebuked him, Peter said, not so, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. You're not going to be crucified. You're not going to know. And Jesus looked at him and said, anybody know what the first word out of his mouth to Peter was? Satan. Satan, get behind me. You do not desire the things of God. Wow. Wow. So it was a doctrine of the devil that's saying, okay, you can escape the cross. So are we saying now that we believe that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying the doctrine of the devil? Trying to escape the cross? No way. No way. John chapter 12, he said, shall I pray for this hour to pass from me? No, but for this hour I came. I do not see him praying to escape Calvary. I see him praying to escape that night. Because the Bible says immediately after that, and I won't, I won't take time to document it, but it says... An angel came and strengthened him. That's what he had been praying about. Lord, if you're not going to, if you're going to let me die here, I'm going to have to have, this is going to mess up the whole plan. That's what he was praying about. Bring me, give me strength. And an angel came, just showed up out of nowhere. An angel came and strengthened him and got him through the night. You following me? This is powerful. Jesus wasn't wimping out, the hero of the scriptures, the hero of all history, the hero, the greatest man that ever lived, the return of Adam to planet earth, glory to God. He's wimping out? No. He's even more a hero. He was trying to make sure he made it to Golgotha. Glory to God. Glory to God. I'm going to finish with this last one today. Jesus was not poor. Number five, Jesus was not poor. Religion tries to teach us that Jesus was broke, that he was poor. I do not believe Jesus was poor. I think it's in John. Where was it in John? John chapter 19. where the soldiers gambled for his clothes. They were going to tear it up, take the fabric. One guy's going to take one piece, and one of them said, no, no, let's don't tear this up. Let's don't tear it up. We'll gamble for it. Now, the soldiers taking time out from their work to gamble for this poor man's clothes. Are the soldiers really going to gamble for a guy's clothes who's broke? 
What kind of clothes did he buy? Nice clothes. They had to be nice clothes for these soldiers to want them. They gambled over his clothes. I don't think I've got any clothes that anybody would want. <laughs> but they sure wanted his. There it is. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Who shall it be that the scripture, that the scripture might be fulfilled? They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. They were gambling to get his clothes. What kind of clothes did Jesus wear? They pulled that thing off him, and they looked at it and said, Look at that, man. Give me a name. That's a Christian Dior suit. I'm not tearing that up. History tells us that these wise men from the east, when they came, you probably wonder where to get his money. Wise men, when they came from the east, tradition tells us there were three of them. The Bible never even hints that there might have been three. Tradition tells us that one brought gold, one brought frankincense, and the other brought myrrh. That's how the false religion of the world narrowed it down to three kings. One bringing this gift, another bringing that, another bringing this. They come, they come something like 700 miles on camels to bring three little coins. That'd be an insult. They did not come to help a poor guy out. They came to inaugurate a new king. What kind of gifts do kings give kings? Kings bring kings treasures. And history teaches us, one Lutheran historian looked it all up and did a, did a massive thesis on it, and he said that it, it, the several times it had been identified in ancient history of this event taking place when kings of areas and kings of cities, a lot of city-states back then, would, would come together to inaugurate a neighboring king, it said that as few a number as it was ever recorded was 10 of them, sometimes as many as 40 and 50. 50 of these guys would get together and come these massive entourages. And all their camels were loaded with treasures. They were trying to say, we, we identify your, your kingliness and we welcome you to the club, so to speak. Who knows how much treasure came that day, but it wasn't three little corns and a tiny little box of something that smelled good. It was a king's ransom. And I had somebody tell me, well, but you know, Joseph and Mary were poor. They brought the doves. Listen, they weren't living at home. They brought what they could. And by the way, you might feel like it's okay for you to spend your kids' money, but I don't feel like it's all right for me to spend my kids' money. And a good man doesn't. That money wasn't brought to Joseph. That money was brought to Jesus. Everybody understand this? He was not broke. One time he called his disciples together. So he, there were t probably 20,000 people in the crowd. 20,000 people. There were probably a Durant, Oklahoma, including the college campus, all in one big gathering on the shore when Jesus stands up. 
and they've been with him three days and nobody's eaten anything. You think I'm long-winded. You think you're hungry. Three days just to hear that man of God preach. And he says, have them sit down and let's feed them. Well, okay, but the town, we've we got to get, get to town. You want us to just go buy bread? And they told how much they had in the treasury. Y'all, they had a treasurer for this ministry. He wasn't the best choice, but his name, it was Judas. <laughs> they had a treasurer. You don't need a treasurer for $15. We can keep up with that. This treasurer had the money, and for three and a half years apparently had been stealing out of it, and nobody caught him. How much money was in there? I'll tell you how much, uh, what kind of budget they had. Jesus had a staff of 12 people who almost all certainly had families, wives and children back home. And his ministry was paying for all of that. Not to mention having these banquet feasts with 5,000 men besides women and children. Probably something like 15 or 20,000 people there. Durant, Oklahoma showed up. And he fed them all. Not because they had to buy it. But the disciples were asking the question, okay, where are we going to go, 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 going to, go to buy all this food? It's amazing to me. Amazing to me. That we've bought the live religion saying Jesus was broke. Do you know what that does to the church? It makes us all want to be like Jesus. What it really does is those who are prosperous, those who are wealthy, it makes them feel like they can't possibly be followers of Jesus because you've got to be broke to follow Jesus. It's just of the devil. It's designed by the devil to keep the church thinking small. Rather than thinking we're taking over. We've come to take over. You need to tell two people, I'm here to take over. Tell somebody else, I'm here to take over. Amen. Not here to blend in. We three kings. No, there were more than three. There were more than three. There were a lot of kings. There was a lot of wealth. Well, we're going to pick up here next time. I hope you got something out of this today. Amen. Got a whole bunch to share with you. A whole bunch to share with you along these lines. Let's pray together.